Welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the birders that pursue them. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Shrobsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Pot. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously, where to find amazing birds. Head on over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, and be sure to sign up to our newsletter on the site so you do not miss out on any of the exciting things that are coming up. Be sure to follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And please take some time to rate and comment on it. So this is episode 40 and it's the last episode of 2020. And I'm sure a lot of you are breathing a big sigh of relief as this year winds down. Again, on behalf of the Birding Life team and all of our Birding Life ambassadors, I just want to say a big thank you for all the support over this past year. We counted a tremendous privilege to be able to play some small part in your birding story. We finished 2020 on a big note as I get to speak to a guest all the way from the USA. He is an author, the Digital Communications Manager for the American Birding Association and the host of the American Birding Podcast, which is one of the world's biggest birding podcasts. I am pleased to introduce Nate Swick. In this fascinating interview, we get to hear all about the American Birding Association and the work that they do. He also gives tips on how we can all improve as birders. We also chat about the controversy surrounding bird names in America and a whole lot more. We can't wait for you to hear today's episode. If you have a story that you'd like to share, you can simply send us a voice note and we will look to include it in the show. So without further ado, let's hear from Nate. Okay, Nate, it's awesome to have you on the show tonight. I actually was saying to you when I was preparing for this podcast, this podcast is a result of actually listening to your ABA podcast for many, many months. And yeah, when I started birding, yeah, the dream was planted in me to start a podcast because of the work that you guys are doing. So thanks for inspiring me all the way from the States. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, when I started, when we started doing the ABA podcast, American Birding Podcast, that was sort of what I hoped would happen. Um, you know, when we started, there weren't a ton of birding podcasts, or at least not a ton of you know regular birding podcasts, and I definitely wanted to change that. And uh, I, I, you know, I've been, it's been really cool to see so many people realize that they can do it too, and just uh, you know, more voices in in the birding world, you know, out there uh, for people to listen to. I think is absolutely best. So like I said, I've been listening to you for quite a while and I've kind of got to know you over the podcast and got to know your views about certain things. Um, got some strong views in certain areas. We'll chat about that as we go through the episode. But the reality is a lot of people listening to this are from South Africa and I would guess that a vast majority of the South African listeners probably have no flipping idea who you are. So I'm going to ask you just to, in a couple of minutes, just share a little bit about who you are, where are you based and just, yeah, just tell us about you. Yeah, so um, I am the digital digital communications person for the American Birding Association. We're kind of a small birding advocacy organization here in the U.S., uh, represent the U.S. and Canada birding community. And so my, my role here has been basically anything that's online, I usually have uh, some sort of say in. I host the podcast, the American Birding Podcast, I have for about four years now, and I, you know write a couple regular columns about rare birds in the U.S. and Canada and do the newsletters and a bunch of other kind of random things for the ABA. Uh, and that that's pretty much 
you know what I do. It's uh, I, I I can say I don't know a lot about the South African birding community either. Uh, but if you're familiar with the like the geography of the of the United States, I'm located in North Carolina, which is sort of on the southeast coast, um, kind of mid mid Atlantic coast. Although I'm pretty far inland. Yeah, all we normally know about South Africans, while well, other people are different, is like Florida and California and those places. But <laughs> between about halfway between Florida and New York. <laughs> but it's amazing with the worldwide with the internet is uh, I've actually got to know birders. I've got a guy I speak to regularly from Portland, yeah, and also got a Canadian birder um, stays in BC, uh, British Columbia, and right, it's quite yeah. it's awesome. I get to know birders from all around the world. They're actually, the the guy from Canada sent me a message. I got a message and he was like, oh, you live in South Africa, don't you? And I said, yeah. And all of a sudden he said, oh, I'm, I'm in South Africa tomorrow. Would you take me birding? And all of a sudden <laughs> through the internet, we got to take this guy out and was it's amazing how the internet is connected birding around the world. Yeah, it really is. Um, I started writing online uh, sort of in the pre-social media Facebook age. I guess it's probably been about 13 years now. Um, and yeah, one of the first things that I noticed about it and certainly loved about it was you, you make these connections with birders all over the place, all over the United States, all over the world even. And um, over the years, I've had the good fortune to kind of touch base with some of those people and, and interact with them in various ways, usually birding. And uh, it's, it's been great. I mean, I've made a ton of really, really lasting friendships just online through bird bloggers, bird writers, bird podcasters even. So let's go right back to the story. When did the birding bug start? And was there a specific bird that you remember that just stands out? You said that is the bird that was just the bird that just stuck for me. Yeah. So it's hard for me to think of a time when I wasn't interested in nature and the outdoors. Uh, my dad was a science teacher, a middle school science teacher here uh, for for 30 years. And so we always we were kind of an outdoorsy family. And so when I was young, I was really interested in in reptiles and uh, insects primarily, but uh, it wasn't very long before birds came along. You know, um, each of those taxa have sort of issues with them. The bugs are just like, there's too many, it's overwhelming. And at the time there weren't any really good field guides to, to bugs. And herps can be kind of hard to find sometimes, at least in the United States, maybe it's different in South Africa. But uh, you know, birds were kind of the perfect, perfect uh, of, of both worlds, best of both worlds. And that, you know, there's enough diversity that you know, you can have fun searching for all these birds and, um, you know, there's tons of great field guides. There's not too much, you know, to get overwhelmed. And so I spent a lot of time on the river and I started noticing birds uh, when I was doing that. And the first bird that I really spent a lot of time trying to figure out when I was young was a, a white-eyed vireo. Like I distinctly remember a white-eyed vireo, uh, which is a little, little kind of bland looking songbird here. Um, pretty common in the eastern part of North America. But they have this really distinctive song. That's uh, that's uh, the epine uh, the mnemonic is uh, quick. Give me the beer check. Quick, give me the beer check. And um, I I heard this coming from like this dense willow stand, and it took like I couldn't see the bird. It was really hard to find. And but I eventually got a, a fairly good look at it after like kind of floating a canoe real close to the stand. And so I went back home and I pulled out the field guide and I started flipping through it until I figured out what it was. And it was a white-eyed vireo. And that process of like going from a mystery and then solving that mystery was really appealing. And I was kind of hooked after that. And I wanted to, you know, join the local bird club and go out on birding outings with with the local community of birders. And my dad, to his credit, was uh, super open to that. And so he would take me because I was too young to drive. And yeah, the rest is, is history. I've gone through periods where I've been more into it and less into it. Uh, when I was in college, I didn't do a ton of birding. 
but uh, came back to it pretty hardcore after that, and and have been been going at it ever since. And then Nate, as far as I know, you got two kids. Am I correct? I do. Yeah, I have two. I have a uh, uh, my son is eleven, and my daughter is six. How has being a father changed your approach to birding? Well, it certainly kept me closer to home. <laughs> um, you know, I uh, before I had kids, I was kind of a, I you know, I wouldn't say a super serious state lister, but I chased birds in my state pretty regularly. And once I had kids, I I kind of pulled in close closer to home more. I take my kids out every once in a while on nice days at the local parks. I try to make it a place where, you know, there's stuff for them and stuff for me. Uh, you know, like a playground near of some woods and a nice trail or something and, and they'll go out with me or a place where they can ride bikes or, or whatever. I try not to force them <laughs> to be a birder. I've seen that sort of backfire on birders with kids in the past. So um, you know, if they if they want to come with me and enjoy being out and that's that's fine with me and if they kind of turn their interest towards nature uh bugs or herps or birds even uh you know i'm i'm definitely here for that yeah let's give you a challenge there's a guy in south africa called fancy peacock we actually had him on our webinar the other night oh uh, yeah i know fancy well i know and, and he <laughs> and he wrote a book um fancy's book kids book and it's it's a full field guide for kids and he wrote it with his kids in mind and it's amazing oh, wow. it's like yeah. you know for newer birders I, it's, it's a great book maybe we should look at doing a birds book for kids maybe a, a guy named uh, bill thompson the third who was a, a magazine editor here he, he edited a, a pretty big birding magazine bird watchers digest and um he actually wrote a book like a kid's guide or a young birder's guide to the eastern part of the u.s and uh it's it's actually really nice. Unfortunately, Bill passed away uh, a couple of years ago, but uh, that book is still out there, and um, it's it's really good. Yeah, it's you know, it, I, I like those books that where they are, you know, gentle in kind of bringing people in, but not like patronizing, you know. And I have not seen Fonzie's book, so I imagine it's very similar. But um, you know, I think that's sort of the the line you have to hit when you're trying to bring new birders or kids in because you know they're smart and they are capable, and you know. They just are ignorant. They just don't know anything about birds. And you just kind of give them that information and uh, help them along. And then how's the young birding community in, in the U.S. at the moment? You know, I think one thing that's very interesting in South Africa is a lot of young birders coming, a lot of um, teenagers and birders in their 20s and mm-hmm. early 30s. And what what's really interesting about a lot of these younger birders is is just their, their interest, not just in birding, but in biodiversity as a whole. I mean, yes. some of the guys we go birding with, I mean, the guy will be... You'll be chasing off the dragonflies, butterflies, frogs, snakes, and I'm just like, I don't even know what you're looking at. The guy's like, oh, lucky little dragonfly will fly past, and the guy will just identify it by the way it flutters its wings. <laughs> and it's just fascinating, these younger birders. How, how is the younger birding for for the youth in the States at the moment? Uh, it's it's pretty good. It's, it's certainly stronger than it was when I was, you know, a teen birder. Um, when I was young, I was... It was me and some other guy were the only birders in our state. And, uh, you know, you would frequently be the only person at bird walks and you would, you know, you didn't have any sort of peers to interact with. But now, oh, man, and I think this is largely due to social media generally. um, It's so much easier for younger birders to connect. And if you have that sort of peer reinforcement, then they're going to stick with it and really, you know, keep building their skills, keep building their experiences in a way that I you know, I didn't when I was younger. Like I got, I went, I went into birding really hardcore, and then I kind of tailed off because I didn't have any peers, and then kind of came back into it later. Um, now, you know, they're just they're just sticking with it, and I've I've met so many good 
young birders in my state and around the around the continent around the u.s and canada i mean there's there's a ton of them um and certainly not just teens but people like kind of young professionals graduate student age like in their 20s and 30s too and uh i I, you know i birding benefits so much from having their energy and their expertise and um i think it's just better for the birding community to be more more diverse in age and diverse in everything because you know when you this younger birding community is is just more diverse generally. There's more young women birders. There's more uh, black birders, Latino birders. There's, there's there's just like more of all that, and I think the birding community just benefits so much from having them uh, involved. Uh, I'm really excited about the the kind of the next generation of birding leaders. Yeah, I'm always interested to work out just what are all the movie the big year actually had. It's amazing <laughs> how many people that are not birders that have watched that movie yeah. and. You know, it's almost like that movie has made birding accessible for people oh, because totally. it's all of a sudden it's it's like they've allowed them to to look into the world of birding. And yeah, I, I when I started birding, it was one of the first movies I watched. And it just it's it's a great movie. Yeah, I actually have a funny story about that movie. Um, a few years ago, I got to uh, take part in a birding uh, conference or something in uh, in Western India, and so I got to go to I was in uh, uh, Gujarat in India for a few days and got to take part, got to do some birding there. It was amazing. Uh, but as I was coming back home, I transited through uh, Mumbai, the airport there. And so I was sitting with another birding media person, a journalist from uh, from Portugal. And we were just kind of chatting about birds that we'd seen. And uh, we we're on the tram that goes between the terminals at the Mumbai airport. And sitting across from us was this guy from Oman. And, you know, he was like, in the Omani, you know, dress, the big long flowing robe and the, the headdress and his wife is sitting next to him in like a full burqa. And uh, he's kind of watching us and we're talking about birds. And then he um, he leans over and, and asks us in a pause in our conversation. So what are you guys doing here? And we told him what we had gone to a bird watching conference in, in Gujarat. And he said, oh, yeah, like like the big year, <laughs> which is so funny because like I that that movie has been entree into interest so many people's kind of awareness of birding and it was like the last place i would have expected to have someone reference the big year <laughs> talking to me yeah india is one of the places i want to go and visit we one of your someone you know adam riley did a talk at our local bird club oh yeah, yeah. and he's one of the places he spoke about was india and since then it's like oh my word i've got to go and see the birds there. it looks amazing have you been to any other places around the world and been able to bird yeah, uh, one of the one of the benefits of being involved with the ABA is that I occasionally get to, um, you know, get invited on some of these trips, and and that's usually how a lot of my international travel is. Um, so India, uh, I got to go to, been to you know Central America a fair bit, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and Costa Rica. Uh, I got to bird in Uganda uh, a few years ago which was a, you know a little little taste of African birding, uh, which was um, amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, we were there for like 10 days just around the little bit of, a, of Uganda and we got like 400 and almost 450 species in my little group, which was unreal. Um, the birding in Africa is like nothing I've ever experienced. And I've, I've got to do a little bit of South America. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been great. I mean, obviously anytime you get an opportunity to, to bird outside of your, outside of your, you know, where you live is, is an opportunity that you sort of have to take. And then on a day-to-day basis, which is your local patch and what are some birds that you encounter regularly? Yeah, since the pandemic started, I've been birding 
you know, in the immediate area around my house. So I have kind of, I live kind of in the suburbs uh, of Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, it's pretty, you know, traditional neighborhood streets here, single family houses, but I've got about a block away, you know, I don't know, like a you know, 400 meters away, uh, a little trail that kind of cuts back into the woods that these woods are owned by the city because it surrounds uh, one of the lakes that we use for drinking water. So they kind of do a nice job protecting that area, the watershed there. And so I, I, I've been walking back up in there and, um, uh, you know, it's been great. I've seen almost a hundred species of birds there this year. Uh, the regular things that I have every single day are things like American crow, tough the titmouse, Carolina chickadee. Um, I have a lot of bluebirds and Northern mockingbirds in my yard. Um, Turkey vultures, red-shouldered hawks. Red-shouldered hawks nest somewhere near here because they make a ton of noise. Um, in the last few weeks, uh, towards the end of the summer, I had um, some barred owls that were calling in the middle of the day uh, that I could hear while I was working in my office. So they they were really loud. Um, and uh, you know, in spring and fall, when migration is happening, you go out back in the woods and any little bit of habitat, you never know exactly what you're going to find. I had a good haul of, of wood warblers and just, you know, migrants, uh, all this year, but it's been, yeah, it's been pretty good, but that's my normal, you know, there's like just about anywhere there's, you know, 30, 40 species that I can usually be counted on to, to encounter on any birding, any birding excursion. And then what is your favorite birding spot? Oh, so I was there just last week, uh, here in North Carolina. If you go out to the coast, we have these barrier islands called the outer banks, and um, they're really super skinny and they're separated from the mainland by a big sound. And so um, they're just, the birding there is fantastic. You get this great mix of, especially in the winter when you get all the migrant waterfowl down here and, um, and you get birds out over the ocean. And the first, you know, it's fun just to go out on the beach and set up a scope and just watch the birds go by uh, gannets and, and cormorants and, and loons and hopefully, you know, sea ducks and all sorts of really cool stuff. Uh, Jaegers, I had Jaegers on three days. And um, they're also great, you know, vagrant traps too. So um, I went out birding one morning at this little park that was north of where my family was staying in a town called Kitty Hawk. And uh, I found the, my state's fourth record of McGillivray's warbler, uh, which was really cool. And it's actually, as we are talking, it was about a week ago that I found it. It's still there, and tons of birders have, have gone to see it, which has been uh, really satisfying, too. So, Nate, you are the Digital Communications Manager for the American Birding Association. So, firstly, what does that mean? And secondly, for especially for those who don't live in, in America, what is the American Birding Association? Yeah, so my role is basically, you know, anything online is what I do. And I the podcast is part of it too, uh, which is, you know, social media, podcast, newsletter, things like that. That's, that's pretty much a breakdown of what my role is. Uh, as far as the American Birding Association, we are a uh, birding advocacy group. We, um, we're a relatively small organization and we're slightly different from Audubon, which is the organization that I think a lot of people around the world have probably heard of. Uh, Audubon is more of a big bird conservation organization or a bird advocacy they're, they're a big bird organization kind of broadly speaking whereas the american birding association is kind of more of a birder advocacy organization if and i realize the distinction is kind of is kind of slim there but um we do a lot of you know identification tools birder access initiatives um we provide a lot of information and resources to the birding community to help you identify birds uh, enjoy birding more, things of that nature. Um, those are the things that we've really done well 
over the last few years, um, helping people find birds, helping people enjoy birds, building this kind of birding community, uh, which is our, which is our, which is our, you know, MO. The, the, if, if Audubon is kind of bird focused, we are birder focused. Yeah, I've been looking on your website and I must say it's an amazing website. Just the information that's on there, just oh, cool. the, yeah. the stuff about bird identification. It's just really, really like next level. So you guys have done an amazing job. I must just give you guys compliments. Oh, cool. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, historically, the ABA has sort of been typecast as the organization for listers. You know, if you want to, if you're interested in sharing your lists or in sort of competitive birding or whatever, um, the ABA is the organization for you. But I think in the last few years, we have sort of paired that with sort of a general birding interest stuff. You know, um, I don't know, because listing has sort of changed. I think maybe you've seen it as well over the last 20, 10, 20 years. Like the idea of a lister has sort of changed from that kind of, you know, twitching mentality to one that is, I don't know, there's all sorts of ways to enjoy birds. And uh, we certainly want to encourage people to do to bird in ways that they find meaningful. Yeah, we had a discussion a while ago, a couple of weeks ago on one of our episodes. We spoke about that. You know how almost people have this, there's the listers and then mm-hmm. there's the guys who are the the purists. And then it's almost like very often times, you know, you're in a bird club and someone speaks about the fact that they're a lister. And it's almost like they there's people that look down on them. And mm-hmm. we were just saying, you know, people must bird the way that they enjoy it. Do what they enjoy, as long as it's not hurting anybody else, and as long as it's not hurting birds. Just do what you enjoy. I think that's oh yeah, totally. That's what's most important. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, it's been interesting. I don't know if big year listing is as big in South Africa as it is here. You know, there was a the long time when the idea of the ABA area big year, you know, try to see as many many birds as you possibly can in a 365 days in a calendar year, and you know, I think that sort of was this big. I don't know. It was it was kind of held up as like the ultimate birding achievement, and then um, you know as social media and technology and eBird and all that stuff have come along, it's been easier and easier and easier for people to to rack up those big numbers. This has been a conversation that like kind of my local birding friends and I have been having. Um, it's almost like that whole risk that whole reward mechanism is sort of broken a little bit. You know, John Weigel, who was an Australian birder. An Australian American birder came over and just like totally smashed the ABA area big year record a few years ago. Like just set a bar so high that it's almost impossible for anyone <laughs> to reach. And in that way, it sort of like broke the big year and sort of broke the big year mentality a little bit because when that number is so high it, and it feels like it's impossible for someone to reach, well, then if you want to have like a meaningful experience doing something like that, you've kind of got to man change the expectations and change your change what you want to get out of it and uh it becomes a much more kind of personal experience which i think is great like i think this is wonderful like there are so many different ways to to have that sort of birding experience whether it's through like a, a state big year or a county big year or a green big year or even just like counting the birds that you see at your feeder and enjoying those birds like there's so many different ways to enjoy birds and birding it doesn't have to be just one way. And um, yeah, I, I think we sometimes get ahead of ourselves or in each other's way sometimes when we try to, you know, police the way other people bird. But as you say, like, um, if you enjoy it, you're doing it right. Yeah, we have, we as a bird lasser app in South Africa. And the, just looking now, actually, the guy who's leading this year uh, for the South African 
birding big year is a guy called Vincent Ward. And I mean, it's crazy. In a lockdown year, he's on 600 species of birds. It's insane. I mean, of, of <laughs> yeah, 850 yeah. odd species that are in South Africa, he's smashed 600, 600 at the park. So really insane. Yeah, the, uh, when John Weigel set the record, and this was not even not a pandemic year, but like had like 850 out of the thousand odd species on the ABA checklist, including Hawaii now, and it's like, okay, I guess, I guess no one's gonna go for that number anymore. <laughs> I've I've noticed on the internet and on various social media platforms, there's a lot of controversy around the name Audubon right now. Oh, yeah, so yeah. tell us about this controversy, and as well as the controversy around naming people after birds. Yeah, or naming birds after people, rather. Um, yeah, you know, it's been. Oh, well, I, I've, I haven't had anything to drink, I promise you. <laughs> no, I do that all the time. Like I, sometimes on the podcast, I'll say like when I read the people who join the ABA, I'll say like they joined the podcast and said the ABA is around. No, I, I hear you. But yeah, the, this whole uh, bird names for birds uh, movement, I want to say. Uh, yeah, I think it's probably a movement. Um, there's a lot of kind of younger birders, a lot of, uh, you know, diverse community of birders who have sort of started to ask the question, you know, why do we name certain birds after people? And why, what, what, what do these people do that would, you know, causes them to have this bird, this bird named after them for, for, I don't know, eternity, you know, what, who are bird names for? I think it's the big ultimate question behind bird names for birds. Are they for these, these ornithologists who, you know, in a lot of cases did do a lot of important work that contributed to the way we think about the bird world in North America. But on the other hand, you know, that's all they did. <laughs> that's all they did. And sometimes they did some other things that were really not that great. And birders have different needs for birds. Like we would prefer to have names for birds that are perhaps useful, that tell us something interesting, or at least help us identify this bird. And I think, you know, those, those, those are sort of conflicting interests a little bit. And so uh, a lot of the bird names for birds folks, and, and I'd like to give a shout out to Jordan Rudder and Gabriel Foley, who have been, you know, really the spearhead, the the real, you know, energy behind this movement you know we're just sort of asking this question and causing us to sort of think about you know the way that we kind of move in the world in relation to everyone else and yeah it does sort of feel like a maybe a small thing but i think the reason that people have we have kind of grasped onto that is because changing bird names is something that is like accessible it's really hard to do sort of big national level uh international level changes in the way that we think about this stuff but Bird names, like there's a process for changing bird names. There's an organization here in North America called the American Ornithological Society. They have a committee that makes taxonomic decisions, splits, lumps, all that stuff. But they also do name changes. And like we, these people are in our community. We sort of know them. This, this mechanism for changing names or making changes in the taxonomy is well known. Um, it feels doable, right? And that, I think that's part of the reason why people have grabbed onto it. But it's been really interesting at the very least because it's causing people to sort of think about these names and why we give people these names and, and what it means for a bird to have a person's name. And uh, we did sort of get, see some success with uh, McCown's Longspur, the bird formerly known as McCown's Longspur, which is this kind of lark-like bird uh, in the Great Plains. A really neat little short, short grass prairie bird. Uh, but it was named after John Porter McCown, who was a general in the Confederate Army in the American Civil War, uh, which, you know, on the losing side of the American Civil War. Uh, a bird and ornithologist from Eastern Carolina University submitted a proposal uh, to change the name. And uh, this year, 
they they did it. And now the new name of the bird is Thick-Billed Longspur, which is, you know, maybe not a super evocative name, but it's a very useful name. If you're identifying the bird in the field, they really do have a, a thick bill when you're comparing them to other longspurs in like a mixed flock. And so, you know, here's this process by which we can sort of, you know, move the ball forward quickly, short, you know, slowly. And we, you know, you totally understand that it's easy to change the name of a relatively esoteric bird from the you know the great plains that not a ton of people outside of birders or scientists have heard of or seen um and maybe it might be harder for something that's more common like say a cooper's hawk but you know i think it's important for us at the very least to sort of start thinking about this and sort of maybe moving that ball forward and and you know the first step is always to let people know what your argument is and then you know we're sort of at the point now where we're sort of we're seeing you know, discussions about what to do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been it's been a thing. Maybe it's been a sort of a pandemic hobby, a birding adjacent hobby for for a lot of folks. But I think it's an important conversation to have, and I, I really appreciate all the people that have done a ton of work more than I have to to you know have that conversation and make sure that you have the information at your disposal to make those arguments. Yeah, one of the episodes you did on the American um, Bidding Podcast was the one where you spoke about John James Audubon, and you spoke about just the, a lot of the myths around it. There was a paper they wrote about it. Maybe I can get that link from you and just pop it into the comments section because it might be very interesting just people just to hear a little bit about the context around this because I think there's a lot that, like I said to you before we, were, we went on, on air, you know, I always heard of this guy and he was like this legend in American birding and a whole of that's almost being smashed now. Oh, totally. And there's, yeah. there's, there's almost like so many myths around him and so many things that were not true about him. And it's, it's, it's sad. Yeah. So, you know, John James Audubon's considered the father of American ornithology and, you know, necessarily. And it turns out that a lot of that reputation is sort of self-made, you know, it's a bit sensationalized and it was a bit, he's been mythologized by himself. Like he was a master self-promoter and a great artist. It does have to be said, like he was a really good artist, but you know, he was putting together this book, this anthology birds of North America. And in order to get people to buy it, he effectively like made up a handful of bird birds to put in his book, uh, to help, you know, sizzle the, you know, make it a little more exciting than it actually was. Not that the, you know, the birds of North America aren't exciting enough. We do have some good birds over here. But he made up one uh, that was called the Washington, Washington's Eagle, uh, named after George Washington. Uh, It was supposed to be the largest eagle on the continent. And, you know, this, this amazing bird that he painted and was like on the first pages of this book, and this was like completely made up out of whole cloth. And not only was the story made up, but like like he, he had actually plagiarized the illustration from an earlier sort of zoological text. And Matthew Haley, who is the one who wrote the uh, Matthew Halley, who is the one who wrote this this paper that was published in the, the British Ornithological Union journals, basically points out, you know, how this is that this happened, that he essentially plagiarized uh, the illustration, and he made up all the stuff around it. And he took it over to Europe, to the UK, um, essentially to raise money for the publication of this book, and he was successful doing so. Yeah, and I mean, this whole myth of Audubon was sort of built on this, on essentially what was what was essentially a lie. Like, he, he made it up. He was a stringer. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just a a really crazy story once you get through it. And yeah, that is definitely one of my favorite episodes of the American Birding Podcast, just because we dug into this story. And there's a bunch of other little tiny things, little aspects of it, like Audubon kind of tricking uh, Richard Harlan, who is another guy with a bird named after him, a subspecies of red-tailed hawk, 
And basically, you know, Harlan's saying, oh, I found this Washington Eagle and uh, this live this live bird. And then, um, or, or no, it was a, it was a taxidermy copy. And uh, Audubon is like, oh, yeah, that's that's it. That's the Washington Eagle. And then he finds out later that Harlan had actually purchased it and put it in in one of the museums in Philadelphia. It's just it's just it's just bonkers. Like the whole thing is bonkers. Like there's so many funny angles to it, and it's I I don't know. Like Audubon is this massive massive character in North American ornithology, and and not just that. Like he he has influence all over the world. And just to like know that this truth is coming out. Like how do you how do you reckon with that? How do you deal with that? Um, I don't know. It's hard, but uh, I know at the very least the story is is hilarious. I think. Yeah, earlier this year, um, Jason Ward uh, followed him on Twitter, and one of the things that he highlighted was the incident with Kristen Christian Cooper, and you know it just poses the question: um, How inclusive is birding in America right now? Yeah, that's uh, a good question, and and maybe not one that I'm entirely um, qualified to answer. But I, I will say, from my perspective as a you know, a white birder who's been involved in the in the birding community for a long time. Uh, that whole Black Birders Week thing has been um, really eye opening. Um, just the ways in which we can, you know, unintentionally perhaps exclude people from our hobby. Um, I certainly don't want birding to be like that. Like I want birding to be as open and and friendly and and inclusive as we possibly can be. I think it's good for birders. It's good for the birds. It's good for everybody. And so, you know, I, I, I'm really excited and happy that people like Jason and a lot of the other people behind Black Birders Week were felt, you know, comfortable enough in their numbers, in their voice that they could come and say, hey, look, this is a problem. What can you do about this problem? We, we, this needs to be addressed. And um, I think it, for myself, like, I think it was, I think it was great because I, I as I said, I want birding to be inclusive and, and I, I really, um, uh, appreciate their voices to that extent and and to from what i can do uh, what i've tried to do is include more black voices on the american birding podcast to make sure that you know we're am amplifying as many voices as i possibly can because as as the host of a podcast i do sort of have um i, I have, they have the ability and i do feel like i have the obligation to kind of portray the american birding american and canadian birding community in um the best way it possibly can be and um, I, I mean, I want to do that. And if I can include as many different people, as many different voices, and just, you know, show that we are all kind of here, we're all, you know, interested in birds and, and love to talk about it. And, and you know, that's that's something I can do. And, um, you know, Jason has been a, a, an amazing partner uh, in that regard. He's, a, he's definitely someone that I, that I lean on a little bit uh, to do stuff like that. But, um, yeah, the Black Birders Week movement, that whole thing this summer – um, was intense and important. And, um, yeah, I'm glad to see that the has ripples that go beyond, um, North America, the North American birding community. So we also have a youth birding podcast. We think it'd be on episode four or five. Uh, Another guy called Chris Flannery runs are doing an amazing job. We actually had a guy, Zabidi Mueller, who is, he's living in Australia and I was a birder from, uh, the U S and he was, he is pushing the black birders week quite a bit. It's interesting how the young people, you know, really get behind these mm-hmm. causes is really awesome. But anyway, we had a young birder, and I'm going to botch up her surname, so just forgive me. A uh, young birder named Fiona Giliogli, um, <laughs> and she was on our youth birding podcast. And one thing she spoke about was uh, the the young birder camps that 
which is really awesome, are sponsored by a South African company. Let me just put it out there. Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Adventures. And she just spoke about... Yeah, they've been a, a great partner for the ABA. Yeah, and she just spoke about how amazing these camps are. Can you tell us about these camps and how are they run? Also, how are how do you choose who gets to go on the camps and those kinds of things? Yeah, I, I wish I knew more about them, honestly, because that's not necessarily something that I'm involved with. I'll just say kind of on the, on the surface... Um, yeah, we, the ABA has run a number of young birder camps, and I, it should be said that there are a couple tour companies in the United, in the U.S. that do it as well, Victor Emanuel Nature Tours, uh, notably. And uh, I, you know, I I actually um, attended one of those when I was fourteen, the one in Southeast Arizona. And so it's really neat to see those camps still going on and still finding places for young birders to kind of. It's it's so important for young birders to connect with each other, so they know that they're not alone. Uh, out there in the birding community because sometimes you can certainly feel that way especially if there aren't many other young birders uh, in your immediate community and you know it's it's we do have some scholarships available but mostly it's people that are that are are paying to come to these camps Um, we don't actually make a ton of money off of them it's mostly just like zero sum we earn as much as goes into it Uh, and we've done a couple with the ABA uh, in Colorado in uh, and in Delaware for the last several years, and we've tried to expand a little bit. We did one with uh, Hog Island Audubon. It's a partnership with Hog Island Audubon in Costa Rica last summer. Well, the summer before last, uh, the summer before the pandemic, um, that I got to be involved in, which was amazing. And uh, we were going to do one in South Africa. Unfortunately, the pandemic happened, and we weren't able to do it. But um, you know, anytime you get those opportunities to to travel abroad for young birders to travel abroad is is huge. I'm, I mean, I remember my first trip. I was not a young birder then. I was, well, I was youngish. Uh, my first international trip to Costa Rica and just what an incredible eye-opening experience that was to be kind of out of your, out of your depth for a little bit with a, like a whole new suite of birds and a whole new, uh, uh, you know, environment that you have to explore. And it's almost like you're a beginner again. Um, anytime you get those opportunities, it's, it's truly amazing. And um, I, I definitely think the young birder camps, and I, and I want to give a shout out to uh, uh, Jenny Duberstein, who's one of my colleagues here. Uh, at the ABA, who um, who basically runs a lot of those camps and does a, a truly fantastic job with it. So we've mentioned a few times in the show that you are the host of the American Birding Podcast. And for just for people listening to this podcast, we'll pop a link into the comment section. Just go check out the podcast, one of my favorite podcasts around. So how long has it been running and how did it get started? Yeah, so uh, we're in our fourth season, fourth year. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we went weekly this year because of the pandemic. We were kind of stuck at home. Might as well provide some content for people to talk about birds. And uh, so we started back in, boy, I'm going to have to go back and look. It's 2017. Oh, my goodness. It's been a long time. Yeah, you know, we were looking for ways, you know, podcasting was sort of growing. Uh, there weren't very many birding podcasts out there at the time, or at least, um, yeah, the, I mean, they weren't super regular. And so in my mind, I really wanted to, they were they were great podcasts, but they weren't quite hitting what I wanted uh, in a podcast. So I kind of had in my mind this idea of what a birding podcast would look like or what I would really like it to be. And at the same time, the ABA, uh, my colleagues at the ABA were kind of tossing around the ideas of a, of a birding podcast and what it would look like. And um, yeah, we just sort of came together at the right time. Neither of us had gone very far down that path. It was sort of in the the experimental phase, I guess, uh, the brainstorming phase, and um, we just decided to go ahead and do it. And I I took the lead and and just went for it. And you know, four years later, here we are. Pretty 
a pretty amazing experience, I think. I mean, I, I'm as 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 a person, I'm not like a super outgoing person, though I can sort of play the part. Um, but I can talk to anybody about birds, and sort of having the opportunity to talk to so many different people about so many different aspects of birds and birding and conservation and all sorts of stuff um, has been really fun. Yeah, and I, I'm I really I'm constantly amazed at the the people that come out and say that they listen to it and that they enjoy it. Um, totally grateful for that. It's been, it's been neat. It's been just a whole neat experience that I've been really, you know, grateful to be a part of. And then how does the preparation process look like for an episode and how's hosting the podcast help your own journey as a birder? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, so as far as the process goes, I, I, I keep an eye out for interesting guests. So it's sort of an interview podcast. That's sort of the core of the podcast. And so I'm constantly on the lookout for people who are doing something interesting or researching something interesting or just would be fun to talk to. Uh, and I keep a little list of on online on my computer, just of notes of people that I think would be fun to talk to and uh, just shoot them an email pretty much and say, hey, would you like to talk to me about, about whatever? Uh, I, w- I like to keep it focused because I don't ever want to you know, like throw away a, a potential guest. Like I don't want to, you know, completely use whatever I can get out of them. So I, I want to, what I mean by that is that I want to keep them focused on like one specific thing. Um, and that way, if something else comes back that they might be a good resource for, then I can kind of go back to that person and say, Hey, would you like to talk about this sort of related aspect? And then they can come back and I can talk to them again. So, yeah, I, I put them on my list and then we schedule a time and we, we chat for, I don't know, half an hour or so. And then I will take that uh, that interview and I'll cut it up a little bit and then I'll send all the parts, including the introduction and the rare bird alert that we do every week, over to John, my colleague John Lowry, who does a lot of the technical production and he kind of stitches it together and sends it back to me and then we put it out and that's pretty much it. So I have a lot of people on my potential list uh, which will be fun to to work through. Um, I'm well into 2021, uh, which is exciting. I'm sorry, what was the second part? Of, oh, how does it how does it affect my own birding? I don't know. I, like I constantly learn things from people. Uh, I'm perfectly happy as host to be to play the kind of dumb guy role and you know ask whatever questions that people might want to know uh, because you know I'm constantly learning about birds as well and um, certainly people who have very specific interests. Uh, uh, have a lot more, have a lot more information to give me than I have. And uh, I've learned a ton. Uh, I've, you know, enjoyed talking to people about all sorts of different aspects. Um, it's sort of made me, uh, I don't know, it's, it's given me different insight into the ways that different people bird. And that has been really rewarding. It certainly made me a more, you know, I don't know, introspective birder. I'm always sort of thinking of the angle now when I'm out birding, like how would this be a good story to tell? Or would this be a good thing to talk about down the road with somebody um which has sort of been i i, I don't know I, I tend to do that anyway and i guess now i have an outlet for it <laughs> yeah i think when i started the podcast i just had a whole lot of people that i wanted to talk to and ask a whole lot of questions to and i just thought well let me ask the questions and just record it and let people listen to the conversation so that's pretty much right right yeah yeah and it's been a lot of fun i've been able to be speak to some really really amazing people people that i've looked up to for many since i've started my birding journey and yeah like i've i've learned so much from them yeah, I, I I totally agree with that. I mean, it's been, it's it's really I find it's really easy to get people to talk about things that they're passionate about, right? So, um, and and everyone that I talk to is passionate about birds in some sense, and um, it's it's pretty easy to get them 
get them wound up. <laughs> yeah, so this morning I was sitting on the couch um, watching an episode of Friends having breakfast and my, mess- my friend sent me a message and said there's a greater sand plover mm. at one of our local, um, uh, one of the little local estuaries there, which is quite a, it's a really cool bird. Anyway, I got home and looked at the pictures of the bird and opened my field guide and we were just trying to see is this a greater or is this a lesser mm-hmm. um uh, sand plovers the the lesser is rarer but i was hoping for the greater because the greater would was a lifer for me anyway looking at the field guide i was even more confused um <laughs> what what always amazes me is when you spend time with better birders and you start talking to them you you start to discover that they they see things on birds and they see things in birds yeah. that normal birders just don't see. And you've written books on bird identification. So what would you say are some things that birders should be looking out for on the field if they want to grow as birders? Yeah. You know, I always, um, when I'm talking to novice birders, especially, uh, I always harp on the importance of, of what I call kind of soft field marks, like status and distribution and things that aren't necessarily on the bird, but just sort of around the bird, uh, you know, time of year, what the bird is doing, the habitat that the bird is in, things of that nature, because a lot of times that will that will you know clue you into the to the identity really quickly, or at least you know kind of narrow that giant list of birds that are possible at a given any given place into something that's a lot more manageable. Yeah, I mean, so people are always sort of surprised by that. Like you know, if uh, here in here in North Carolina, I'll use an example. Um, we have two species of wood warblers that in the fall can look really similar, um, orange crowned and Tennessee warblers. But, you know, when I'm thinking about them, I, I almost never get them confused, mostly because Tennessee warblers arrive in my state, like in late September, early October, but you won't usually see an orange crowned warbler until, you know, almost November a lot of times. And so you don't usually see them together, so you don't usually have to think about them in terms of each other. So if you see one that kind of looks like an orange crown slash Tennessee, you know if it's in the earlier part of the fall, then it's a Tennessee. If it's a later part of the fall, it's probably an orange crown. And so if you're just looking at the birds in your field guide, you're just looking at the pictures of the plates, you can be really easily confused by those two birds. But in the fact, the fact of the matter is that they're not really all, they're not really seen together. So you don't really see them all, so you don't really confuse them all that much. And, you know, getting people in touch with those sort of field marks and sort of understanding the the where's and why's of birds is like, I think a huge thing for novice birders. You know, birds are actually super predictable. Like they're, they're typically going to be where they're supposed to be at the time they're supposed to be. And certainly those weird ones that we always get excited about are the ones that, you know, are, are the exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, you know, 90% of the birds that you're going to see are going to be in the places they're supposed to be. And sort of knowing those places and knowing what to expect in those places is something that is super, super useful uh, for a birder. And I feel like that's a step that is sort of missed sometimes. Like people want to focus on what the bird looks like and all the field marks on the bird when those sort of soft field marks around the edges are uh, are so much more useful. Yeah, I know. We had Fancy, who's a, a expert with LBJs and waders and that. And he said, oftentimes what you observe in the field is more important than than. Um, you know, getting a photo at times. Sometimes you get the photo and you get home and you can't work yeah. it out. He said, just spend some time looking at the bird. I mean, one thing when we got home and we looked at the plover, the 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 the, the two of them, the amount of steps between when they feed is different. And you oh, yeah. you know you have to spend time That's in the cool. field to see those kinds of things. And it's interesting how you know it's those small things like you said make make all the difference. Yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of people, you know, when you when you first get your field guide, you get really excited and you're 
paging through the field gun, you're looking at all these possible birds. Well, like anything you can do to sort of narrow down that, you know, book full of 800 or some birds is going to be like useful because otherwise it can be super overwhelming, especially if you're sort of new to it. So, you know, I try to try to make that easier for birders. And, uh, you know, a lot of people realize that that's that helps a lot. You know, as I said, birds are predictable. They're going to do, they're going to be where they're supposed to be for the most part. And then that just the last question, in terms of your own, um, your, your life and your future, what does the future look like for you? And maybe also, you know, if you've got, in terms of your podcast and all that kind of thing, what, are, what does the future look like for you? Yeah, um, well, I, I, it's hard to look too far in the future too, because we're stuck in the middle of this pandemic thing and it's hard to think about what it's going to look like on the other side of it. Uh, I can't wait to travel again. Um, I can't, I like, I feel like we've picked up one of the things that's been really interesting about this pandemic has been the growth of birders, uh, new birders that have sort of picked up birding as a pandemic hobby. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what the birding community looks like when those people are able to start, you know, being out in the field and, and going to bird festivals and going to bird club meetings and all the sort of things that we used to do before then. Um, I, I really am excited to see what the birding community will look like then. I feel like we're kind of in a state of arrested development almost. Like we, we want to leap forward, but we can't because we're stuck at home for the most part. But I see all these kind of signs of birding, you know, being a really big thing once we once this pandemic breaks. And I, I can't wait to see what that looks like. As for me, um, I'm just going to keep doing the podcast. I hope people keep listening to it. And um you know, hopefully I'll get to, we'll get to travel again and we'll do some of the, those episodes and, and meet some more people and talk to some more people. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, Nate, it's been so good to having a chat to you. It's been a huge, huge honor for me and a privilege to actually get to chat to you and look, hopefully we can do it again one day. Yeah, man. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Take care and, and stay safe and healthy. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders and exciting birds out there do not forget to follow the birding life on instagram and facebook we really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts be sure to check out bird lasser and download the app on either ios or android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation as well as sarovsky optic one of the world's leading producers of binoculars binoculars and spotting scopes So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.